Welcome to the Jay Martin Show. My name is Jay Martin. I'm an investor and the CEO of Cambridge House. And my guest today is Ben Greenfield. Now, Ben is a world-renowned thought leader in the industries of health science and biohacking, extending the healthy lifespan. He's the best-selling author of 13 books in this field. He's the founder of Keon, a supplement and nutrition company. He's the host of the Ben Greenfield podcast, one of the first actually podcasts to really focus on extending the healthy lifespan. He's a true pioneer in the sector, self-experimenter. He practices what he preaches, all this stuff. Now, Ben's a fascinating guy to talk to if you just want to geek out on health science and biohacking, but that's not what we did today. Where we ended up taking this conversation and why I wanted to talk to Ben was to dive into mindset and psychology, specifically to discuss so many of the deep divisions and conflicts that I see in my surrounding communities today that really trouble me because we've hit some kind of an impasse where so frequently people are unwilling to entertain opinions that conflict with their own. There's a growing intolerance of ideas that oppose your belief system. This is creating increasing divisions and conflicts in our society, and I want to find a solution to this. So that's really where we spent our time today with a focus on mental health and how Ben processes all of this. You know, he's a successful influencer, if you want to call him that, successful entrepreneur, but he also has emancipated himself largely from society. He lives off grid on 10 acres in the Washington mountains, grows the majority of his food or hunts, and he raises his kids, you know, relatively uh, off grid. And so he went down the rabbit hole with me on this one today. He got really vulnerable, got into his real foundational core belief systems, which are fascinating to discuss in, in terms of spirituality and religion and end of life process. We got really deep here and I, I really enjoyed this conversation. So I hope you do too. This is the Jay Martin Show and you're about to listen to Ben Greenfield. Enjoy. All right, I'm here with Ben Greenfield. Ben, it's good to see you again. Hey, what's up, dude? It's been a while. It's been a while. Yeah, it was two or three years ago where we first connected and you came up to speak at one of my conferences in Vancouver. The focus was on optimizing health and longevity, extending the healthy lifespan and new breakthroughs in health science, right? I was curious what you were focusing on in mm -hmm. like the, the biohacking realm. Yeah. How do you describe what you do, Ben? Maybe I'll start there. When you meet somebody at a cocktail party or you know, out anywhere and they say, Ben, what do you do? What do you tell them? I tell them, I don't know why I'm at this cocktail party because I don't really go to cocktail parties, <laughs> but I, <laughs> I, I don't know. I'm sitting, sitting next to, uh, I suppose, some old lady on an airplane. And that's what I'm doing. I, 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 would, I would tell her uh, I, I'm an author. I'm an author in an order, right? Like I write books and I, and I speak. You know, I also do some investing in the health and fitness and nutrition sector and I do uh, some some articles and some writing online. I own a, a supplements company, you know, just a little bit of this, a little bit of that. But really, you know, my my uh, modus operandi for the past twenty years, since graduating with a with a degree in in uh, exercise physiology, biomechanics, and and nutrition, uh, has been to just uh, explore and be immensely curious about all aspects of optimizing the human machine, the body, mind, and spirit, and then uh, reporting back to people on what I find, typically through through written or spoken word. So uh, that just takes a longer time to say than, than telling someone that I, you know, I'm an author, I, I write books, because most people could understand that. But yeah, a little, little bit of everything. 
Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, you know, there's, there's a handful of like tactical things that I, I would love to talk to you about in the health science arena, but where I want to start, because on, on my channel, Ben, like I'm an investor first and foremost, that's the foundation of everything else that I do, whether it's my podcast, YouTube channel, newsletter, conferences, it starts with my portfolio and, and what I'm looking at. Right. And, and when I create content or what I have this channel for is to dive into things like sound investor habits and investor mindset and psychology, because that's where I see a lot of people make the most frequent mistakes when they're approaching decision-making in general, but definitely in the market, right? We fall victim to things like FOMO. We fall victim to our own biases and blind spots and all this stuff. And overcoming that is kind of the urgency. We're about to finish this round, but we just thought of you. Just get us an answer in the next 24 hours. <laughs> and uh, here's here's where you can send the wire. Sorry for the last minute notice, but I guarantee this one's going to be worth it, man. I, I get one of those a week at least. 99% of investments out there. Why yeah. did you contact me four months ago for the due diligence? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's funny. That's hilarious because I, I dealt with one of those this morning. Okay, so let's let's stick with mental health for a minute here because I, like anybody, like you, I'm sure, are seeing just this exponential increase in conflict and division in the communities that surround me, right? And so when I talk about like investor mindset, I you know, I, I try to pair it right back to the, the foundation of, of mental health, right? Like, how are we making our decisions? How are we processing the world around us? And, you know, without question today, I see more conflict and division in the minds of the communities around me than I've ever seen in, in my life. Now, you live a pretty off-grid lifestyle, right? Like, yes, you're a successful entrepreneur of Keon, you know, best-selling author of 13 plus books at this point and a recognized thought leader all over the world in health science, but your personal life seems to me, I mean, you're on an acreage in the mountains in Washington. I believe you grow or hunt all the food you consume. You've been able to detach yourself from a lot of probably these conversations, but how do you process what you're seeing in the communities around you, Ben? And I'm talking about these deepening divisions and, and intolerable conflicts that are arising everywhere around us right now. I don't grow around all my own food. Avocados and coconuts are two things that I like to eat, but I haven't yet wrapped my head around how to get them to grow in Washington State. So right. uh, there's 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 some notable exceptions. Probably bananas too. I uh, tend to see probably the really number one thing that seems to contribute to and fuel a great deal of the divisiveness that, of course, contributes to many of the mental health issues that you've alluded to. To be uh, an all or nothing or black and white or somewhat divisive approach to opinions, meaning the vaxxers versus the anti-vaxxers or the vegans versus the carnivores or the crypto folks versus the gold standard folks and, you know, so on and so forth. And really, you know, human beings are, are wired to connect with and to identify with a tribe and with a language and with a certain worldview that I think to a certain extent is healthy in that it gives us some kind of foundational belief or value system that enables us to feel confident, that enables us to feel as though we 
we have something to rely upon, whether that's a filter or a lens through which to see the world or a certain set of people who are our tribe or our community who we can identify with and who we can rely upon to be able to protect us in times of need, right? Like these are all kind of evolutionary or, or ancestrally wired mechanisms that are built into human beings. You know, if we were cast out from our village or our tribe a thousand years ago, it would have meant in many situations, death or illness or predation. And it's very interesting because we see now that loneliness actually contributes to a, a host of problematic health issues like high blood pressure, or onset of chronic disease, or just increased all-cause risk of mortality because we have this kind of cool, really, physiological mechanism built into us to, to have a, a deleterious biological reaction to being cast out from our tribe, to uh, being shunned by our community uh, because that would have at one time in, in human history meant sure death. Of course, that's, that's really not the situation now. We could lose our connection with our tribe, with our community. We could, you know, not, not be accepted anymore by whatever that spin class that we go to every Monday morning because we decided we weren't going to, I don't know, wear a mask or something like that. Uh, and, you know, it, it's not as though we're, we're actually going to die. And yet we still experience a lot of those same biological mechanisms that we would have in the past uh, when we get into a situation where we feel as though we are lonely, with loneliness not necessarily being social uh, isolation per se, meaning like, you know, all on our own on some like mountaintop in the wilderness with nobody to rely upon, but really just basically a, a disconnect, a delta between our perception of how much social contact we should have or how much acceptance we should have versus how much we perceive we're actually having, meaning that I could have like one or two close friends who I can rely upon and maybe a, a family that welcomes me in for a nice family dinner every evening and be perfectly happy the rest of my life with that because I perceive that to be enough for me. And someone else down the street could have like 5,000 Facebook friends and half a million Instagram followers and, and maybe also a robust social life, yet feel as though they actually aren't experiencing the level of social connection that they should be. And that person would actually be experiencing a lot of the deleterious biological impacts of loneliness compared to the person who's perceived that, that their social connectivity is just fine. And so what, what that means is that we, we really develop and rely upon this ability to be able to to really connect with a certain tribe, to connect with a certain group. But as a result of that, we can sometimes get tied so strongly to that sense of belonging and to that, that set of opinions or beliefs or values that we shun or paint as a scapegoat anyone who might fall outside that belief system because it threatens our own tribe. And so I, I think that the problem that I see right now in terms of, of mental health and social divisiveness is being too stuck in our own ways, not being open-minded, not approaching life through the lens of really uh, dissecting and analyzing and being very curious about 
just about any opinion that might be presented to us. And you certainly need a worldview. You certainly need a lens. You certainly need a filter. But I think that the, the gut response that many folks have to, to anything, whether it's a diet or a health or a fitness principle, whether it's a, a medical principle, such as many that we're, we're being exposed to these days, is to simply say, no, I'm not XYZ. I don't fall into ABC camp. Therefore, you're an enemy. Therefore, the, the general frequency of energy with which I approach you is going to be that of anger or fear or shame and not peace or love or joy or forgiveness or acceptance or hope as it should be towards a fellow member of my human species mm. simply because you present a value that might at some point threaten to isolate me. And so I, I think the, the biggest thing is that I realize it's a long answer to your question is that we need to remain open-minded and accepting of people. And even if people do eventually, upon our analysis, happen to have a belief pattern that falls outside that of our own, we still need to accept them as a fellow human being and respect them and engage in respectable dialogue with them rather than simply escalating to the level of either violence or scapegoating because someone doesn't agree with something that we think, or because we don't agree with something someone else thinks. Yeah. Okay. So there's, there's a ton to unpack there. I want to pull on a few threads. And just before I do, if you're listening to this podcast, and as in not watching it on the YouTube channel, Ben's on a treadmill right now. So <laughs> if you're wondering about the, 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 the uh, cadence of his voice, it's because he's, he's on a treadmill while we're speaking right now. But anyways, Ben, so I completely agree with you. I see the same trends you do. I come to the same conclusion that we need to find a way to be more open-minded because look, I mean, the, the, the tribalism mentality, the community mentality makes all the sense in the world to me. The question I have is how did we develop, because in my experience, this is more recent, such an aversion to opposing ideas that, that conflict with our own. But, you know, again, I, I mean, I come back to like, as an investor, if I ignore the ideas I disagree with, like I'm the one who gets compromised, right? It expands my blind spots. It narrows my field of vision. It, it increases the echo chamber that I may already be in. And I'm the one who suffers as a consequence. So if, and this, you know, beyond the financial markets, I look at the conflict and division in my communities and it breaks my heart right now because there are a handful of conversations that I just can't have right now with loved ones because if my view opposes theirs, it'll be, it'll become confrontational and offensive way too quickly. And I'm like, how do we fix this? How do we get back to listening to opinions that we disagree with? And what you said is we need to get back to having an open mind. And I'm like, okay, I agree with that. But we need to be incentivized typically to take action. And if we could somehow get back to remembering the benefit, the benefit of conflict, the benefit of challenge, like the advantage of doing something hard because it makes you better is the same as the advantage of listening to an idea that you disagree with because it'll help formulate your thought process, right? And mature your own ideas. It's like the hormetic response relationship a little bit, isn't it? Do you see it that way? Yeah, possibly. You know, the, the hormetic response from a biological standpoint simply dictates that, you know, what doesn't kill us makes this stronger. For example, sunlight, despite being vilified quite intensively, you know, at points over the past couple of decades is, of course, quite beneficial for you. The UVA, the UVB, the near infrared, the far infrared, 
We know that it, that it sparks new activity in cells and fuels the mitochondria, these photons of light, and yet large exposures of sunlight, large exposure to particular UVA and UVB radiation can result in the higher risk of skin cancer, or at least uncomfortable burning. You know, cold is very good for you, but if you spent three to four hours in a cold bath, you would likely develop a nervous system response that made you sick or that stressed you out excessively or even killed you from hypothermia. The same could be said of heat, right? We know that a regular sauna practice extends lifespan, but intense periods of, of so-called hyperthermia is actually cytotoxic to the cells, which is one reason why intensive heat treatments are used very similarly to chemotherapy to, to kill cancer cells. Exercise tears apart muscles in your muscle interior. It looks like World War II after a workout, and yet somehow magically the, the satellite cells respond and the mitochondria grow and you develop into a stronger human being. Yet, if you did spend six hours in the gym on leg day, you could wind up in the hospital with kidney failure due to, uh, due to, due to what's called rhabdo, right? A excess muscle protein breakdown in the, in the bloodstream. And you know, the list of examples could go on and on. But you know, the, the idea of disagreements or divisiveness causing hormesis, I suppose could make sense if you think of it in the terms that it might cause some type of neurogenesis or neuroplasticity or the ability to be able to process new information or the ability to expand your horizons or become a better person or a more intelligent person or a more well-informed person by, again, remaining very curious and open-minded about the opinions of those around you. And so I suppose you could say it's kind of sort of a form of hormesis in that small amounts of divisiveness and conversations with someone who you might disagree with could actually be very mind expanding. So I suppose you could almost treat it as, as some form of like a, a neurological or a psychological hormesis when we are A, not avoiding conflict, B, engaging in intelligence and open-minded conversation with those who we might disagree with, and C, walking away from that conversation, kind of assimilating and digesting that information and becoming a better person because of it. So yeah, I, I think we could probably say that, that it is a form of hormesis. And I, I should name that I'm in no way endorsing or championing the idea that we should have no filter whatsoever, right? I think that sometimes when people talk about being open-minded and accepting everyone, that we can delve into, you know, kind of almost like a uh, what, what some might call a Marxist socialistic view, or some might call, you know, a little bit more of like a, even, even like a, like an atheistic view of moralism to where we say, well, you know, you speak your truth. I'll speak mine. You say what you feel is right. I'll say what I feel is right. And that scenario works under the assumption that humans are good people at their core and that we at our core will, when given the opportunity you know, share with others independently without any government enforcement to the point where the wealthy give away all their wealth until the poor all around them have actually reached a level where those poor people can subsist in a, in a comfortable fashion. You know, that, that's, that's just one example. Or, you know, that we might, if we have a couple of extra cars, give them away to someone who doesn't have cars. And some people will do that, but many, many people will not. And so, you actually do need, at the end of the day, some form of absolute morality, some form of absolute truth where you say, well, yes, this is right, this is wrong. We believe that 
that that cannibalism is you know e eating your neighbor is something that I think isn't a good idea and isn't right. And I would say that if you take the open-mindedness to its its greatest extent, you know, using a bit of a slippery slope fallacy, that eventually you'll meet someone that says eating another person actually is okay and is right because that's what they that's what they feel and believe is right. And at some point you have to say, well, no, that's wrong. And it's wrong because not necessarily because I believe it's wrong, but because it's wrong. It's actually a universal truth that eating another human being is something that is morally unacceptable. And so I, I think that at the end of the day, despite there being a great deal of benefit and, you know, this, I guess, new term we've coined on this show, neurological hormesis, to being open-minded and curious, you still need a filter of absolute truth and morality through which to, to feed your open-mindedness and curiosity so you can make wise decisions about what actually is right and what actually is wrong versus what is a less important, you know, just pure difference of opinion. What's up, everybody? Sorry for the interruption. Quick note, if you enjoy these conversations, I publish a weekly newsletter and it's free where I share my top takeaways lessons learned, and any action steps I might be taking as a consequence in the market. Sign up at cambridgehouse.com. I publish every week and it's free. Now back to the conversation. That's where the conflict comes from because you and I could have varying degrees of what we consider to be an absolute truth. And if I consider something to be an absolute truth, but you're like, no, that's that's completely discretionary, right? Then you're, you're morally offensive to me and we get to this crossroads, right? So my mm -hmm. question, I guess, based off what you just shared is how, how do we get to what we could call an absolute truth? And, and I just, I see that as a, such a fluid point of debate based on your, your origin story, right? What you were raised to believe from your earliest memories and and that that creates morality and ethics and those those absolute truths in our mind right which are never going to be the same worldwide i don't think so but what tell me i'm wrong what do you think i think you're opening a pandora's box jay because <laughs> uh in asking me that question i of course would love to give you my most honest and transparent response and i will uh, i i believe that the absolute source of truth and morality is actually uh, laid down by God. I believe that there is an actual intelligent human being who created the universe and created the universe with a certain set of rules, such as the, you know, the tint of the sky is blue or the moon waxes and wanes at different cycles, or you know, to go a little bit more extreme, human beings aren't supposed to eat other human beings, right? And so um if if i believe that then of course in many cases the response is well then if you believe in god and in the 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 dictums that god has laid down and i do not aren't you supposed to kill me like aren't i your 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 enemy in the, in the purest form of the word because you know if i'm if i stand in stark contrast and i'm an, in an I'm an enemy of your absolute morality technically you know, I, I'm a threat to the planet and should be removed from the planet. And this actually opens Pandora's box also, because if you look at this from 
the perspective of the history of the human race, then what, what that means is that when you see situations where, uh, where, where God, for example, in religious literature, including literature such as the Bible or, or the Book of Enoch or the Dead Sea Scrolls, where God actually uh, does encourage those who believe in his absolute morality to actually defend themselves or even attack other people. It's really interesting, and, and this is not a direction that I saw this conversation going, but it's usually in a situation where so-called Nephilim or fallen angels have intermingled with humankind and solely the bloodline of the human race to the extent to where uh, God actually steps in and allows human beings to intervene and actually go to battle and engage in violent conflict against members of the human race who are no longer actual members of the human race who have been sullied by, by fallen angels and so-called demons, et cetera. I, I suppose if you want to take a very deep dive into that, you could read a book called The Judgment of the Nephilim. And we're, we're delving into some very deep spiritual and historical context of the argument for, for absolute morality. But there, there is an important nuance here, and that is that there are very, very large varieties of flavors across the planet of a belief in absolute morality and a belief in God. And many are indeed violent and violent in a way that's different than what I've just justified uh, and, and have at their core a belief that if you do not believe in the God that I believe in, I, I should indeed kill you. And, and I don't believe in that because I am also a Christian. And I think that Christianity is a beautiful religion because at its core message is the fact that we forgive everyone, that we are all on the same footing, that we all have offered to us this free gift of eternal life and salvation through the death of a deity who came to the planet, Jesus Christ. And therefore, based on the fact that I'm no better than you and you're no better than me, and that we all have a chance to be forgiven, then the very best thing I can do if I am to truly be like Jesus Christ is to accept you and to forgive you and to be at peace about your presence and your beliefs, because I also have been extended that same love and forgiveness and peace. And sure, if your morals dictate that you have decided to attack my city or state or country or engage in some type of religious or ethnic cleansing based on your religious beliefs, I do have a prerogative to not simply lay down my sword, turn the other cheek, forgive you, and let you kill me. At that point, I have a prerogative to defend myself. But up until that point, you know, my, my uh, approach is to cover everything, every disagreement with peace, with love, and with forgiveness, and with the notion that we are both, at the end of the day, members of the same species, members of the same human race. And so no matter the difference in our opinions, unless we get to the point where someone is actually, uh, you know, engaged in a, in a very serious, you know, violent attempt against me or my family, I, I would completely cover everything with peace and love and forgiveness and acceptance accompanied by the notion of absolute morality and the belief in absolute truth. And at the end of the day, I do indeed know what is right and what is wrong uh, because I have that laid out for me by an intelligent being who created the universe. And so, so that's my belief on the matter. Yeah, well, thank you for going down the rabbit hole with me, Ben. I appreciate that. 
And I appreciate your transparency, your depth. And, you know, it, it strikes me because I, I'm a, I'm a student of religion in the sense that I love studying religions and from anything like, you know, animist philosophy through to monotheism. It's fascinating to me because from my seat, it's this beautiful world of unknown. And I love that about it. Like I, I really embrace that. And uh, the, the lifelong journey of spirituality to me is, is just this beautiful journey down an unknown road. And I don't know ever what I'm going to find there, but I keep traveling and finding new things and I love it. Right. As a consequence, it's a core part of my being. And I, 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 yeah, I really engage there. I want to use this as a bit of a segue from a context standpoint. You've got a couple young children. You've got twin boys, right? I've got three young boys as well. Like I'm, I'm raising kids and I'm very conscious of, of um, how we will educate and raise our boys, right? Now, I've actually taken some inspiration from you um, in your, your unschooling approach. And we can get into this a little bit if we, if we want to. But for example, my oldest is five. So they're very young. I have one, three, and five. And my, my five-year-old just started kindergarten. He's in a pretty alternative school program, but it's not like a private pricey thing. It's actually the opposite. The whole school is outdoors. There's literally no classrooms. He goes to school in the forest. On day one, they walk into the forest and all the five-year-olds, they select a tree friend. They make friends with the tree, but the purpose of the tree friend is to teach them about cyclicality. They can see the branches develop buds, the buds turn to leaves, the leaves turn brown and fall from the tree. A period of quiet stillness takes over, i.e. winter, and then the tree blooms again. And they are taught that cycles are everywhere and that nothing is static, right? Everything is in flux, everything is fluid. If you, Ben, could change one thing about our education system today, as we know it, right? What, where would your mind go? What would you focus on? My mind would go towards a model of self-directed education, preferably similar to your children's forest school in as analog and natural an environment as possible. And our current schooling system has served us well up until approximately the post-industrial era because it was modeled after well, really in westernized context, largely a German model that allowed us to create very good factory workers and people who could put square pegs in square holes and round pegs in round holes and line up in a row and follow orders and be a good soldier or be a good factory worker or be a good kind of automaton in society. And of course, take it to its fullest extent that that does result in many cases in a society built of, of you know, lemmings or, or sheeple or people who follow orders quite well but don't necessarily think in, in a very creative and independent manner. I think that uh, there, there are some advantages to that. For example, uh, a group of people who think in a creative and independent manner in the absence of absolute morality results in societal anarchy, right? And so you, you don't necessarily want to completely forsake the concept of, of order, and you don't necessarily want to develop a school system that is pure self-directed chaos or entropy, right? There, there are certain things that, that a, a child being educated, for example, should be, in my opinion, nearly uh, re required to do, even if it's not something that they've displayed a, a distinct passion or interest in, such as, let's say, uh, mathematics, right? My kids don't wake up in the morning, they're 13-year-olds, and they don't wake up in the morning begging to learn math or really most of the most of the stem subjects right they're very creative right-brained artistic young men and so i've fashioned their education such that they actually do have some tutors 
and online classes and educational uh, curriculums that engage them in subjects that they other normally may not have chosen to do on their own. And that, that is a certain element of forced order in their education. But that also means that perhaps when they're 18, if they decide they want to be an astronaut or an engineer or a physician, they aren't going to feel as though I didn't serve them well because they don't know what they need to know for, let's say, a, a college entrance exam, for example. And yet at the same time, painting with a broad brush, I think that a self-directed education, which these days goes beyond homeschooling, which often is simply the, the outdated model brought into the home, doing all the curriculum and the rote test taking and the memorization that I feel is no longer necessary, but just doing it around the kitchen table with mom and dad versus doing it at a school. I think it's a little bit better because you have a little less of the peer pressure and you know, learning at the same pace as the rest of the classroom and many of the social aspects of school that we know can sometimes be deleterious. And yet I think beyond homeschooling, this newer concept that has emerged of unschooling, of self-directed learning, of paying attention to your child's passions and interests and desires, and then surrounding them with, with toys, with tools, with games, with experiences, with excursions, and with activities that fuel those passions and desires. Is a, it's a wonderful model. It's a wonderful model, uh, especially when paired with a little bit of forced order, right? Yeah, you're, you're interested in, in, um, in, in, in art and cooking and uh, writing fiction and reading some of the great American novels like To Kill a Mockingbird or Great Expectations or something like that, then wonderful. But you're also going to take you know, this math course, this chemistry course, and this physics course, even though it might not be a passion of yours, because that's going to allow you to be a more well-rounded person, no matter mm -hmm. what career that you decide to engage in. And so I think that a self-directed education, whether with the support of the community or tutors or via like a, a, a charter school or any other way in which you're able to engage with that is a good idea. And, and I think it's a very good educational model and one that I follow, provided that it satisfies at least five core areas. Uh, Naval Ravikant, a great kind of modern day philosopher and you know, has a wonderful uh, Twitter profile and, and uh, vlogs and podcasts, some interesting content, has said in the past that to be set for life or success, a, a young human being should be exposed to really five key areas that they're able to excel in. A reading or the, the intelligent digestion of information at a relatively rapid pace. Uh, writing or being able to dictate one's thoughts clearly preferably even in long form, you know, longer than 140 character tweet, for example, uh, arithmetic or, or basic figuring and mathematics, logic and or computer programming, right? Just simply being able to wrap your head around equations such as A equals B, B equals C, therefore A equals C, and, uh, and rhetoric or persuasion, right? Being able to make a case mm. or to make an argument. And really that's, that's classical education, right? That's, that goes all the way back to the days of, of Greece. And that's, that's an example of what a well-rounded liberal arts education, even, even, even a, 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 a post-high school graduate education, would offer a young student. And I think that if, if those bases are covered, reading, writing, math, logic, and rhetoric, and it's done so in the context of a self-directed education that fills in the gaps with all the passions and desires that that human being might be interested in, and, um, and, and then all of that uh, is basically combined or, or, or really accomplished through the lens of focusing as much as possible on experiential learning, meaning if you're going to 
learn math, you know, like my son's, their, their math curriculum uh, last year was, was to, to build a tree fort, right? That's how they learn their geometry. But of course, it also included woodworking skills and physical education and, and uh, perhaps some physics setting up the, the zip lines so that it didn't cause them to become knocked unconscious when they hit a tree, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think it's a, it's a really great model. So the, the short answer is, I think that, that the best educational model that I know of at this point is an experiential-based, self-directed education that has the requirements of reading, writing, math, logic, and rhetoric, and has done so in as natural way as possible, meaning that similar to your children's forest school, uh, is not totally reliant on being in front of a screen all day, but is instead uh, an immersion in the in the natural world. Yeah, I love that. And, and you know, it, I like these five tenets that you listed, reading, writing, arithmetic, logic, and rhetoric, which I think is maybe missing from a lot of our civil dialogue today, the ability to form a coherent argument and understand why. You know, well, yeah, with my kids' forest school, what I loved about it was like, what are life skills that kids people really need. And number one, one of them is resilience. I live in the Pacific Northwest, not far from you. And for a kid to be outdoor 12 months of the year, that means seven or eight of those months are cold, wet, rainy, snowy. This builds resilient little children. And understanding basic concepts like cyclicality and, and that nothing stays the same, I think is great because we're so inflicted by things like recency bias in our, in our, in our minds where, you know, if, if we hit a slump, end up in a depression, we assume tomorrow will reflect yesterday. And it's hard to imagine that our life could ever get better when we're in those down periods. You know, one of the things that the natural environment can teach is that nothing stays the same, right? Yes, mm -hmm. that period of darkness comes, but the tree blooms again, right? So, okay, look, I know you're tight on time. I have a specific question that's a complete uh, change of direction, but it's from a, a reader that asked me to ask you specifically this question, Ben. So okay. the reader told me uh, they've had two close relationships in their life who uh, they recently lost, right? They lost them to cancer. What occurred was uh, these individuals received a late stage, stage four cancer diagnosis, and both received very similar advice from their medical team. They said, you know, your, your time is limited. I want you to go home, enjoy your family. We'll make you as comfortable as possible to live out the remainder of your life. Right now, the question this uh, reader asked me to ask you is, what would you do then in that scenario? And I, I think I don't think they're asking from a psychological standpoint. How would you come to terms with the end of your life? They're asking the the the, the health science professional Ben Greenfield. Right? If if traditional medicine has told you we're out of options, you have six months. Go home, make yourself comfortable. Or maybe just how would you make yourself most comfortable? But if Ben Greenfield received a stage four cancer diagnosis, what is your next step? That's the question. Well, since you've asked from a tactical standpoint, I've seen many people who have received an end stage cancer diagnosis actually walk away from that and be able to remain alive with good health for a surprisingly long period of time by using a multimodal approach that is steeped in more alternative methods of healthcare for cancer. There's one company, Care Oncology, that uses off-label pharmaceutical drugs to actually develop a series of, of treatments that seem to be 
very successful for treating cancer, uh, both in the presence and in the absence of chemotherapy. That's Care Oncology. I believe it's Dr. Thomas Seifried who heads up that organization. Dr. Nasha Winters and Dr. Thomas Cowan both have excellent resources and excellent books that go into everything from ketosis to mistletoe therapy to ashitaba extract to a wide variety of compounds. And then you've got, of course, many physicians in the US sending their patients to places like Mexico for high dose NK killer cell treatments. For many of my clients, I, I don't really share this publicly, meaning the actual document itself, simply because I feel like it might create some issues for me. But I have a, a two page document that outlines just about every book, resource, and website that I've found to be helpful for robust alternative cancer care remedies that I've seen results in success over and over again. Tactical issues aside for managing cancer with the focus of staying alive and moving on to what I would do if indeed those methods were not going to work and that, that passing from this life into the next life was the eventual outcome, I would certainly uh, heavily consider a, a plant medicine-based near-death experience to be able to better handle and uh, anticipate and and process that process of dying. And often that is working with a practitioner who is well-versed in facilitating near-death experiences. I know several people who, who have done that uh, several months prior to their deathbed and have a much, much easier transition into the next life because of that experience, much less fear, kind of already having the ego dissolved and kind of seeing a glimpse of what is on the other side. And so I think that, that a, a near-death experience uh, via a, a plant medicine experience is also something that could be quite beneficial. So those are a few things that come to mind. And, and of course, since I, I've named this, and because I've named it, it wouldn't be weird for me to do this. I'd be remiss not to mention that giving one's life over to Jesus, confessing one's sins, and laying all of their burdens at the foot of the cross will result in, in a much, much easier transition and also the gift of eternal life as, as they passed forth from this life. And so, of course, that's, the, that's probably the greatest thing that you can do because uh, at that point, death is not death. Death is simply a transition. Mm. Look, man, I, I appreciate you, Ben. Thank you for coming, coming on the show. It's been great chatting with you and I appreciate your time. Well, thanks for having me. In many cases, when I do an interview, people want to know about sticking laser lights up their nose and the best suppository to put up their butt before they go to bed. And uh, I, I enjoy, in many cases, deeper, uh, more meaningful conversations like the one that we've just had. So thank you for hosting me, Jay. Of course, man. Anytime. Anytime. All right. All right. Well, uh, stay well, brother, and we'll catch up again soon. I will. God bless. If you enjoy my content, do me a favor follow or subscribe to this podcast. Drop me a rating and a review and share this with a friend. All of these things allow me to get bigger and better guests on the show. Now you can catch me all over social media at jmartinbc. Thanks for tuning in.